can remain standing if you'd like or have a seat where you are if you'd like. We're going to pray together right now. We're going to pray that this song just reminded us, Lord, we have indeed received your blessing for generation after generation. On this Pentecost Sunday, 2,000 years ago, Lord, you birthed your church. And here we are, countless generations later, your church, receiving your blessing, receiving your favor, being reminded that you are for us, God, not against us. That the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you come that we would have life abundantly, have it to the full, that you restore a relationship with God, between God and humanity, and that you also restore a relationship between one another in this world. So God, we thank you that we can praise you because your promise is true and you've been faithful and you will continue to be faithful for generations to come as we trust you and lean into your promise. On this global day of prayer, Pentecost Sunday, Lord, we join together with Christians all around the world in thanking you for your faithfulness, thanking you for thousands of generations of faithfulness that you've shown us time and time again, Lord. But Lord, we also join our voices and our prayers together right now with people all over the world because God, we need restoration. We need healing. We need spiritual renewal in our lives, in our land, all over this world, God. Lord, more than ever, after the ravages of COVID, we need restoration, God. And so we look to you for it. We look to you to be the God who heals, the God who restores. But Lord, we don't want to go back to how things were. We want to go into the future that you have for us, better than the way things were. Uh, better with you, better with each other, better in this world. Uh, Lord, you're not a God who takes us back. You're a God who moves us forward. And that's what we claim this morning as we pray for the global church around the world, God. We pray you would move us forward in love, move us forward in capacity to bless and minister. Move us forward in service uh, to each other and to those around us. <laughs> so God, we pray for the relief of the pandemic around the world. We especially pray for countries right now that are dealing with it still, just with less resources and less vaccines available. Ask for your mercy, God, and your grace upon them. And we pray especially for believers in those places, that you would equip them and resource them to be lights, to be voices of hope, to be encouragement in very difficult times. But bring your healing, Lord. Bring your power in those places. And Lord, as we pray for the global church, we pray for unity. Lord, we pray that back then in Acts chapter 2, you started the church in a multilingual, multinational, multi-ethnic way. And we get to reflect that today here at Calvary. But we pray, Lord, for unity. We know that there's, there are barriers all over our world, barriers especially when it comes to nationalities and ethnicities. But we know that in you, the barrier is destroyed. The dividing wall of hostility comes down and we are one in Christ Jesus. Lord, I've seen that. I've witnessed that. I've seen Russians and Americans fellowshipping together with deep love for one another, regardless of their country's politics. I've seen Indians and Pakistanis pray for one another and bless one another, even though their governments want to blow each other up. God, I've seen Azeris and Armenians whose nations have been at war for 30 years, but they are loving each other and serving each other when they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, only you can bring the world together in the right way. And we ask that you would bring unity to your world, especially to your church around the world. Continue to show through us what is possible. So Lord, we join our voices this morning. We join our prayers. 
uh, to the many churches around the world praying on this Pentecost Sunday that you would again bring revival and renewal in our midst. And we thank you that in the process of you doing big things, you will come into each one of our lives. You will come and meet us where each one here right now needs you to meet us. Thank you, God. May your spirit minister to each one of us. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Kids, if you want to come over here and follow Miss Susan, you guys will head on out to your classes and fellowships. Well, as you heard in the welcome and as you just heard right now as we prayed, today is a special day in the church calendar around the world, Pentecost Sunday. Um, and we'll touch more on that towards the end as well and what the opportunity we have uh, as a church to join in prayer together over this next several weeks. <clears throat> uh, I'm Pastor David Chan. I'm one of your new pastors here at Calvary. Um, I'm new, but I'm not in the sense that, as many of you know, I used to be on staff here many years ago. Uh, Our family went away for about 10 or 11 years away from the valley. Uh, We came back as soon as we could. Uh, Yeah, right? Uh, No, the Lord brought us back somewhat unexpectedly, uh, but it was really cool to see God's hand in our life and how he's brought us back for this season and back to Calvary to minister on this team and, and with you as a church. And I'm excited about what's ahead. But you know, part of that time, about half that time we were overseas. And when you're overseas, you tend to miss a few things. Now, I mean, America's in the news all the time, everywhere, right? So politics, sports, I mean, you really can't get away with it, uh, away from it, no matter where you go in the world. But there are several things that you do, you know, miss out or you don't see. So whatever your favorite shows were the last five years, if you're talking to me about it, I might be looking at you like you're speaking a foreign language. I may not know what you're talking about, uh, just because I've been disconnected uh, from a lot of mainstream America. But you know... um, Coming back to the valley, it's been really great to see the things that have grown, right? Uh, my kids were really little when we left, and they've said, wow, McAllen's so much bigger than I thought. Uh, but when you're little, you know, everything changes. But it has indeed grown. Uh, all the new coffee shops that are around, so many new restaurants, like as, as if we needed more, right? Uh, so many more conveniences, like a drive through tortilleria. Really? I mean, how much easier can you make it, right? So the pounds will be coming back, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, we miss on some of those things when you're not here and when you come and you see, wow, that's, that's neat, that's going on. Uh, but you also miss some things culturally, like what's going on culturally? What are people talking about? Uh, again, social media is seen all over the world, but there's some things that you kind of miss if you're not living in the United States. And one of the things that apparently has become a thing over the last several years is something called virtue signaling. How many of you have heard of that, virtue signaling? Okay, that's fine. We'll explain it here this morning. Maybe, maybe you're not, I'm not the only one who is learning about new things. But, you know, virtue signaling is something that's being talked about um, publicly and online. And the idea is to publicly support or condemn the right things, at least what you think are the right things that people want to see you support or condemn. And you do it online on some kind of social media platform. Whether you actually do anything about that cause seems irrelevant. Uh, one example was something several years ago now called the Ice Bucket Challenge. Do you remember that? Uh, people were videoing each other doing an ice bucket challenge. So you had a bucket of ice and the dare or the challenge was to pour it over your head. And in doing so, you were declaring basically that you were going to give to one of the many charities that battles ALS. 
ALS is a terrible nerve cell disease, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, Lou Gehrig's syndrome. And what was interesting about this ice bucket challenge is it became funny, it became popular, but some research shows that of the people who videoed themselves doing it, up to 40% didn't actually give to any charity or any cause. That's an example of virtue signaling, showing that you care about a cause, but not really doing anything about it. Uh, another thing I saw was a meme, <coughs> excuse me, a meme of a guy walking down uh, a tunnel with his friend, a, a subway tunnel, and he's showing his friend on his phone, hey look, my post about feeding the homeless has been shared 10,000 times. That's so gratifying. And as they're walking with their faces in their phones, celebrating their shares, they walk right past two homeless men in the subway tunnel and don't do anything about it. That's another example of virtue signaling. Uh, but some suggest that we are seeing a spike in these kind of public expressions of virtue in order to make up for the drop in actual private virtue. That's something some sociologists are looking at, and that's, that's alarming and interesting at the same time. But this seems to be especially true when it comes to the social virtue of tolerance, which our culture now for many years has, has put out there as it, it's a high expectation that you come across as tolerance. In fact, the culture now demands that to express tolerance in the form of either accepting or at least allowing for every belief and standard of morality to be considered equal, that that's, that's tolerance. Um, even if you don't actually agree with it, you have to leave room for it, considered equal in value. But here's what I want to say about that this morning. Sadly, tolerance is not the greatest virtue. In fact, it's hardly a virtue at all. I propose to you that a much higher virtue is love, a much higher virtue than tolerance. Let's contrast that a little bit. Tolerance is passive and love is proactive. Do you agree? Uh, tolerance gets, gets accustomed to something. Love gets activated. There's a difference. Uh, tolerance avoids love confronts. We call it tough love. Tolerance builds fences. Love opens doors. Tolerance breeds indifference. Like you can do whatever you want. I don't care. Love demands engagement. Uh, tolerance couldn't care less. Love always cares more. Uh, there is a place for tolerance in our society, in our world, but by making it a high virtue, a high value, we're actually setting a very low standard of what we can be as human beings in our society. So I propose to you that the biblical virtue of love is the best standard we could put out there and the best one we can strive for. And because we're in church, we're all going to agree, yeah, that's the right answer, right? It sounds good, but what does it actually mean and what does it actually look like to be a people of love? It's hard. It's not easy. And that's why maybe other virtues are put out as, as well, this is more doable. But what does it mean to be a virtue, to have a virtue of love as the highest expectation? We are now in a four-part series that Pastor Julio started last week. And our series is called, We Are Open. Now, of course, we're celebrating the fact that we can open our spaces to gather and we'll be opening more and more, hopefully down the road into the summer and the fall, in terms of opportunities to do things as a church and minister to each other. But we're not just talking about being open in terms of spaces, we're talking about being open people. People of open hearts, like Pastor Julio shared last Sunday. People of grace who've received the grace of God into our hearts and therefore we can give it to others. People of open arms, which we're talking about today. People of love. The next couple of weeks we'll look at what does it mean to have open agendas, and open hands. 
But for today, let's begin with this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, as we look at what does the Bible tell us about how to really be people of open arms. 1 John 4, 7, 12 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is a beautiful passage of scripture, isn't it? Very poetic. John does a great job, especially in these small letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, of just really writing poetically, writing beautifully. But, you know, my analytical mind a lot of times kind of loses itself there. Like, you're talking about love and God's love and our love and we do love and we don't love. I, I get a little bit confused sometimes when John uses all these words mixed together. So let's break it down together and see what can we draw from this? What is John teaching us that God wants to teach us in this passage? Well, first we know that the reason John was writing this letter is because he's instructing the early church how to be the church. It was, it, the church has just been born. The church has just been you know, ignited by the spirit of Jesus living in them and trying to figure out how do we actually now be who we've been called to be in the world and how to truly be people of love, not just with words, right? But how to truly be people of love that demonstrate it with our actions. And so in verses 9 and 10, John shows us the key here. The key is to learn it from God himself. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. It said, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only, one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We see three things here that we learn from God and from his example of love for us to follow. The first thing we see is that God loved first. God took the initiative. It says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Long before we ever knew of God, God wanted us to live and to have the best of life. Long before we ever began to, to have a, an emotion or a pursuit towards God, the scriptures teach us that it's God who is drawing us to himself. God is inviting us to himself. You may have started going to church because your parents or your grandparents invited you, but you know, long before that, God has been planning and orchestrating and saying, what is the way to your heart? I want to win your heart. I want to draw you to myself. Because when you're drawn to God, you're not drawn to just a high standard of morality or a certain pattern of behavior. You're drawn into a relationship with the loving God, the loving creator, who then says, when you do this, you find life you find the fullness of life that you're dreaming of. You think you're going to find it elsewhere, but the irony is you're going to lose it elsewhere. You're going to find it when you come and say yes to God's love. So he loves first. He takes that initiative because he knows that if we respond, we will find the life that we so long for. Uh, he wants us to have that life, so he offers us himself and his love to make it possible for us. What does that love look like? A second thing we see here is that not only God initiates, but he sends. He sends first. It says there, he sent his one and only son into the world 
that we might live through him. God's love immediately produces an action. You see how it's not separated. Uh, God is not just a God of words when it comes to love. Love must be paired with action. Love is a verb, as some have said. And God demonstrates that from the very beginning. He not only says, I love you, but he sends. He sends his own son. God is ascending God because he's a loving God. So we see that God loves by initiating. We see that God sends. He takes action. And what does that action do? We see that God gave first. That action is not just sending his son Jesus as a signpost to the world and saying, hey, here's Jesus, and this is the right way, this is the God way, this is the not God way, everybody go this way. Jesus isn't just some signpost. It tells us here that he was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is sent as a gift, and that gift is a sacrifice. And so Jesus is not pointing people to the way of God, he's actually opening his arms, right? And he opens his arms and he allows them to be crucified on a cross, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that through those open arms, you find life. Through those open arms, you find God. Through those open arms, you find the way that God invites us to live into. He models it and he gives himself for it. An atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, God sends his best. He sends Jesus as a sacrificial gift to die for the sins of the world. That's what love does. Love gives its best. Now, a lot of times as human beings, you know, we, we really feel that we fail in that, right? Whether it's to our spouses or to our kids or to our roommates or to whoever it is that we have a love relationship with, we often fail because we're flawed, sinful human beings. Uh, but that, doesn't, that shouldn't stop us from saying, how can I offer my best? When I wanna love someone, how can I give my best? Because that's what Jesus did. We heard this message last week loud and clear that God has offered you to know him and be saved from sin and the power of death and destruction to be transformed, to become more like God. And it's hundred percent free. It's hundred percent grace. It's offered. And all you have to do is receive what an amazing God we have, right? That he loves us and he comes towards us. He initiates and that he sends, he sends his best. He sends his only son. And that son gives, he gives his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that's what we see in those two verses, that, that God sets an incredible example, an incredible standard of what love does. But here's the question, or what happens next? Look at verse 11, that because God does this, because God sets the standard, this example, John tells us in verse 11, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are to follow his example. And of course, the question is how, right? How do you follow the example of a perfectly loving God? We can't do that, can we? I think there's some things we can take away from God's example, knowing in our weakness, knowing in our frailty, we're not gonna do it perfectly. But what are some things we can do to actually demonstrate love? What does love look like in action? What does our love do? Now, I want to make a quick note here. We could go one of two ways with this topic or mix them together, but the New Testament strongly calls us to love the world, right? The New Testament strongly calls us to go outside the walls of the church, outside of the, what we call the family of God, and find needs to serve find crisis to be a part of, uh, bring hope and bring goodness, go to places that the, don't have the scriptures and find ways to work to give them the hope of the gospel. 
Yes, the, the, the Bible calls us to love the world. But I want to suggest to you this morning, it also places an even greater emphasis to love each other in the church. And how can we genuinely love the world if we don't genuinely love each other first? Uh, you might say, well, isn't, shouldn't they both be the same? Well, it's interesting that in the Bible, there is kind of a family first mentality when it comes to the New Testament church. Galatians 6.10 tells us this, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, do good to everyone, but especially to those who belong in the family of believers. And if we learn to love each other well, then you can go outside the walls and make a difference, actually modeling that love to the rest of the world. Mother Teresa, who famously, of course, gave her life to serving the poor and the oppressed, uh, those far from the blessings of scripture, she famously said that the way to change the world is to go home and love your family. That's where it starts. She saw the huge problems in the world and she said, you know, if you wanna make a difference in the world, start by loving your family. Start by those who are close to you. You know, again, it's, whether it's your immediate family or whether it's your close friends, your roommates, whoever it is, start there. And if you make a difference there, it's gonna start permeating beyond and you can go further and further. And I say this to you as someone who, many of you know, has given so much of my life to missions, to, to, to serving outside the walls of the church. And yet this is convicting, right? To say, well, I can love the world, but how am I doing loving my family? How am I doing loving my church family and serving them? So let's focus on that to conclude this message. We know we're called to love the world, but first let's examine ourselves on the inside. How are we loving our church family? How do we love our church family in following this example Paul gives us in scripture, John gives us in scripture. Well, three things I wanna share with you, three practical ways in which love can tangibly be shared to one another. The first is that love shows up, right? We've already seen that God didn't just send a message, he sent his son and he showed up to be among us. And that's what love can do, love can show up. I'm not just talking about showing up to Sunday, that's great. We want you to come Sunday, we want you to join online, we want you to show up in that capacity. But love shows up in a much more personal way. Love gets more involved, right? Love doesn't just participate from a distance. It participates up close. I have a couple of examples of this in my life. When I was just a young minister working at the college in Edinburgh, um, I had a, a guy who just became a mentor to me, became a friend. His name was George Morrison. Uh, some of you may have known him. He was an associate director of missions of the Rio Grande Valley Baptist Association. Uh, Brother George was already up in age, and I mean, up in age. I think he was in his 50s at the time, but to a 20-year-old, that seemed up in age. Now 50s is young, oh my, so young. Uh, but you know, uh, Brother George was just one of those guys who, uh, who was a pastor, he was involved in ministry, and he started coming around and he just started loving our family. I mean, he just loved our family for no reason, no explicable reason. He was just gifting us, you know, shrimp, from Gulf Shrimp, and he just did so many things to love and care for our family. And I'm this young minister just trying to figure out life and figuring out how I can do ministry in the valley. And, and he, we spent a lot of time together. We spent a lot of time over coffee, uh, having lunch together. And I always felt like I was gaining wisdom from him, but he also seemed to really enjoy spending time with me. And I didn't really know why. Well, Many years later, after we had already left the valley, he passed away. We heard that he had uh, 
a disease, an illness, and he died suddenly. He was the first person outside my family that I made sure that we drove, no matter how far we had to drive, to be at his funeral. Because he meant so much to us. He was so present in our life, we needed to be present at his farewell. Uh, and I was, I was thinking about that. I remember this one thing that in our coffee meetings, he would say that how much that meant to him. And he said, because, you know, we could talk about life. We could talk about ministry. And he said, you know, I know I'm a grown man. I, I know I should trust Jesus. I know I should take all my problems to God. But he said this, but he said, every now and then I need Jesus with skin and bones. Every now and then I need Jesus in someone that I can hug, that I can pray with. And that really stuck with me, right? We all know that we need to trust in God, but isn't it beautiful that God gives us each other so that when we lean into each other, we're seeing God and we're feeling God's presence. Verse 12 in what we just read, 1 John 4 says this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So when you show up, when you're present in people's lives, when you're fellowshipping heart to heart, uh, God shows up and God blesses the other person as a result. You know, I saw that not only individually, but I've seen it also internationally. Whenever we did take some of our international trips around the world, our partners in those places would just be so blessed and so encouraged by our showing up. And you know, occasionally people would ask the question, hey, isn't it? Wouldn't it be smarter to just, instead of sending a team of 10 people, let's just send that money that it costs to send those people. I mean, those places have needs. They have so much they need to do. We, we're so blessed. Let's just send the money instead of the people. Maybe that'll help them more. And it's a logical question worth exploring. But as I would talk about that with our partners overseas, they said, of course we need finances. We always need more. They said, but don't stop coming because what we need more is your presence. When you show up, that makes such a difference in encouragement and in friendship. And we feel that sense of a family that we are not alone. We have people around the world who know us and love us and pray about us, pray, pray for us and care for us. So love shows up. That's a characteristic of love. And it takes time and it takes effort. And my question to us is, are we showing up in each other's lives? What would that look like? Maybe it's time to join a small group. Maybe it's time to be part of a, of a ministry team as you hear opportunities of that in the coming weeks. Uh, but, or it could be very informal, right? Showing up to some, in someone's life over coffee. Love shows up. The second thing I want to show you, uh, or I want to uh, share with you, is that love, you ready for this? Love ponies up. Ponies up. Have you heard that phrase, pony up? I'd heard it. I honestly didn't know. I knew what it meant. It meant to pay up, but I didn't know where it came from. So I researched it. And to pony up is a phrase from 16th century England in the 1500s, not having anything to do with horses, much to my disappointment. I thought I was going to learn something about horses and ponies and maybe you pay someone with a horse. I don't know. But what does it mean to pony up? Um, it has nothing to do with horses. It actually was a phrase in 16th century England and it was associated with March 25th, which in the Anglican calendar, the Church of England calendar, March 25th was the date that payments of debt were due. So you know how your bill says your credit card statement's due in 30 days or your mortgage is due in such a date? Well, in the Church of England, they had a certain date of the year when all payments of debt were due. That happened to be the same day when in their liturgy, you know, they read through the same scriptures year after year. That day they would read from Psalm 119.33. And in the Latin, that psalm starts off, legem poni. Legem pony. 
And so the phrase pony became equivalent or synonymous with paying up debts, even though that phrase has nothing to do with paying debts. But they would hear this verse in the Bible. You know, imagine going to church one day and you don't know what day it is. You show up and you hear legum pony. You're like, oh no, not again. It's the day of paying debts. Thanks for the reminder, church. Yeah, that's really nice. Leg and pony, that's where the phrase pony up came from. And, and you may say, well, what does that mean for us? What do, you, what do you mean we have debts or we pay debts to one another? Hasn't Jesus paid it all? All to him I owe, right? Jesus has paid every debt. What do you mean we have debts? We're under grace 100%. Yes, but listen to what Paul says in Romans 13:8. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Paul tells us here, yeah, all the debts have been paid, but you know what? Because of what God has done for us, we have one debt and you can never pay it off. And that debt is to love one another. Now that's interesting, wouldn't it be? Well, it's to love God not one another. That would be the highest debt. And yes, we're called to love God, of course, but we demonstrate that as John has shown us by loving one another. Why does Paul call that a debt and where does he get that from? Well, maybe he remembers the words of Jesus himself who said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That was the one thing Jesus wanted from us, that we love one another. And this would show the world, what? That you are my disciples. So you have one debt, church. We have one continuing debt, besides the other debts, of course, that we have in life. But the one continuing debt we have in Christ is to love one another. And that's what God wants from us. Loving in action, loving in service, doing the things that, that allow us to give our best to one another. Uh, spending time in fellowship with one another. Spending time in service giving of our resources. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to touch more on that, on, on opportunities to serve, opportunities to give. But let's come at it from this perspective that God has called us to, to have only one debt that we continue to pay, and that's the debt to love and serve each other. And that as we do that, the whole body gets built up, and then we have more power and more strength to serve the world around us. So love shows up, love ponies up, and the last thing is love prays up. Prayer is a very tangible way in which we can really demonstrate that we care about someone. Now, it's nice in the social media, high-tech world that we can quickly share a prayer request and a lot of people know it and got it. But you know, let's be careful to be people of virtue and integrity. And when we say we're praying, are we really praying? You know, maybe we have to say, hey, I'll pray about this later because <laughs> I'm driving right now or whatever. Maybe if we say we're praying, maybe it's good uh, if you're just whispering a quick five-second prayer, God, God hears those too. They count, right? Uh, but are we truly praying for one another? Because love prays up. Uh, over the next 29 days, Pastor Julio has invited us to a 29 days of prayer challenge. And we've prepared uh, with the help of our great staff. They've done an amazing job of preparing prayer guides in English and Spanish. You can also download them. I'm going to have both. I'm going to have both a hard copy and a download copy so I can have it with me. And over the next 29 days, we're calling each other to prayer, to commit, to literally be on the same page. We may not get together every, every day to pray, of course. That's not necessarily practical. But we're going to be on the same page praying through the prayer points that Pastor Julio has outlined for us. 
And that's going to be powerful. That's going to put us in, in sync with one another as we pray for the world, as we pray for the church, as we pray for each other. I believe that God wants to do amazing things. And when we submit ourselves to pray for one another, um, things can happen. Things can change. You can post about this if you'd like, but only if you're actually going to do it, right? Don't just signal a virtue of being a prayer person, but actually do it. Oswald Chambers uh, was a guy who wrote a lot about prayer. He wrote about prayer because he practiced prayer. He was a serious man of prayer. and People would go to him to learn about prayer. And Oswald Chambers, who did a lot of praying, gave this piece of advice. He said, if you seriously want to pray, seriously, get a time and a place, not a mood. Very simple advice, but did you catch that? If you seriously want to pray, get a time and a place, not a mood. If you're waiting for a mood, if you're waiting for the right feeling, for the right inspiration, if you're waiting till you have time later on, it's not going to happen. You're not going to sacrificially and intentionally spend a moment in prayer unless you carve out the time and the place to do it. So over the next 29 days, I want to challenge you to do that. Pick a time, pick a place, put it on your phone so it reminds you if you need it. And say, I'm going to pray, even if it's just five minutes. Those, those points you can go through really quickly. But watch what it does to develop a habit in you and to revolutionize in us this ability to love each other by praying for one another. If you want to be a serious prayer person, get a time and a place, not a mood. That's powerful advice. I think it's very practical. Pick a time and love each other through prayer. You know, a couple of years ago, my grandmother died and she was someone who I know prayed for me. I know she prayed for our, our marriage. I know she prayed for our family. And I know she did it sometime in the morning because back when she used to write letters, she would always write a letter and say, you know, here's what's going on in the day. Yeah, da, da, da. I gotta, and, and she would always sign off by saying, I need to go now. I need to fix lunch for my grandfather. So she would always pray and do all her things in the morning and then she would fix lunch. Uh, when, after she passed away, I can tell you, I missed her prayers. I could feel it. In fact, I think Christy and I had the, the hardest year we've ever had in our marriage. And I'm not saying it's because my grandmother passed away, right? But there's certainly something there where I felt like, gosh, I, we need more prayer. We were having a hard time living overseas and there were so many things going on. And I, I felt the lack of, of that. I, I miss my grandmother's prayer. Now, I know other people also prayed for us and we were sustained. But I want to just share that with you as a personal example. That when you pray for people, you pray regularly, it makes a difference. It really does. It's a great way to love, to show up, to pony up, and to pray up. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that um, in John, you teach us about love and you teach us how to love one another. And Lord, that you yourself gave us the example. You modeled for us how to be people of love who show up for one another, who give to one another. And Lord, help us in this next season of the next 29 days to also pray for each other, to pray consistently and sacrificially and to watch you move in a powerful way among us. Lord, thank you that in our weakness, in our brokenness, uh, you come in and you move, you heal, you restore, and then you equip us, God, to be people who can love others and, and bless others in the church and in the world. So Lord, for any of us here who are struggling, any of us who are coming out of COVID with just a lot of maybe brokenness or angst or, or just it was a rough time, Lord, I pray that you would restore and you would heal 
and that you would make us people who can love one another because we have been loved. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. Help us to share that now with others. In Jesus' name, amen.